Hello and welcome to the final Inside Education of 2020. Inside Education is the podcast for educators who are interested in teaching. My name is Sean Delaney and I'm a primary teacher and teacher educator in Dublin, Ireland. My book about teaching is available from good libraries and online bookstores and the audio version narrated by me is now available. The title is Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have. You can download or listen to over 400 previous episodes of Inside Education by going to my website, seandelaney.com, and clicking on the Podcasts tab. Follow me on Twitter, where I use the handle at InsideEd, and you can write to me by email to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. This week on the podcast, the topic is curriculum integration. And to provide insights on this topic, I am delighted to be joined by two experts on integrated curriculum from Brock University in Ontario, Canada. Professor Susan Drake and Dr. Joanne Reed have written numerous publications, books, book chapters and scholarly articles on curriculum integration. And they work with teachers on integrating curriculum and assessment and on 21st century literacies. Susan Drake has been writing about curriculum integration for almost three decades and she has collaborated frequently with Joanne Reid. You'll really enjoy this week's podcast if you're interested in practical ideas for integration in your primary or post-primary classroom. I think of it like a launchpad into the world of integration, where not only do my two guests share their vast experience of integration, but they list a wealth of resources and websites you can access to learn more about curriculum integration. They trace for us some of the theoretical and historical justifications for integrating curriculum. The show notes contain a host of further reading by Susan Drake, Joanne Reid and others on this topic. When I met up with Susan and Joanne via Zoom, I first asked Susan what an integrated curriculum is. Oh, that's a very good question because it can be a lot of things and different things to a lot of people. But when we did our research, the most consistent definition that we found was that more than one subject is connected to at least one other subject. So two subjects connected or three subjects connected in all kinds of ways, but in a deliberate way that people have done it on purpose. So when you say connected, what do you mean by connected? As we get going, I guess we'll talk about definitions and different ways to look at it. So there are different definitions about different kinds of connections. And one might be just simple. Susan went on to note that the kind of connections she uses most are multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary. She went on to qualify this. And that's only just one set of definitions, but we found that one to be the most useful. And actually, when I did my original research, when I went around and I watched people planning and implementing integrated curriculum, uh, I found that they did it in one of three ways and that they sort of fit these definitions of multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, or transdisciplinary. And the multidisciplinary was the simplest one where actually a few teachers would say, okay, let's all, we're all kind of teaching the same thing. Let's take the topic of war. And in each separate classroom, each separate subject area, they would talk about war some part of it, some aspect of it, and then and not even necessarily ever connected. They were just all talking about the same thing in their classroom. And, or that would be usually a high school class where something like that would happen, whereas in an elementary school, they would go to learning centers and maybe they were learning about water. And so they'd go to one center, it'd be language, and they'd listen to a story and then they'd go to science center and they do a little experiment with water and at each different subject area they would do something around water so the theme was the same but there weren't any deliberate links and then as it almost works as a continuum and the more people start working that way the more they start to see connections the more comfortable they get so then they would move into what we labeled the interdisciplinary where there's more connections. Maybe it's everybody's doing critical thinking. Each classroom's doing critical thinking and probably the same theme. And they connect that kind of way. And then the third one is a transdisciplinary, which meant people, actually the disciplines probably weren't there very much at all. People are looking at social issues 
and they're studying what needs to be studied, but they're not focusing on disciplines at all. So it, does that give you an idea of it's just sort of inch by inch, it gets to be more and more and more integrated, more and more and more connections. Joanne, can you give any examples of integration from a practice perspective? Oh, I can give you many. <laughs> um, and many of them are, are reflecting the kind of continuum Susan just described. Um, you mentioned earlier that uh, Ireland might be influenced by the Finnish curriculum. So you probably already know that in the curriculum reform in Finland around what, 2014 to 16 in that kind of period, uh, Finland introduced a requirement that students from seven to 16, so that's in their full gamut of courses, uh, do a phenomenon-based learning module each year. And that, that module or unit is supposed to be organized around what they call transversal competencies or what over here in North America, we call the 21st century competencies. Um, and so it, it, all you have to do is Google phenomenon-based learning and you'll see examples that have come out of Finland with a number of um, sort of scholarly sort of studies about how successful or not that they are. Um, other sources of of examples of practice come from project-based learning. And again, there's quite a bit of uh, available material around designing projects, projects that have already been implemented. Um, we ourselves have seen a couple uh, in Ontario. For example, one high school teacher we worked with uh, had uh, a sort of a, I don't know, it's not really a school within a school, but a program within a conventional high school where his students were in grade, our grade um, 11 and 12. So they're sort of up there in the high school level. And they were developing their own projects around a sort of 21st century competency and a social justice type umbrella. So they would develop projects around sort of local issues like homelessness or food waste in the cafeteria. And, and they would create their project, evaluate it, present it to an authentic audience for which it was designed. I don't know, so many. Um, and can another... I just ask you, what, what is the difference between a phenomenon-based approach and a project-based approach? Uh, well, I can't say that I'm a super expert on the Finnish examples. I only know what I have read, um, but I see them as quite similar you know, different combinations of teachers or sometimes not even a combination, a teacher might be doing this on his or her own, will design the uh, degree of student construction differently. So some, t some projects are entirely designed by the student and are generated out of the student's personal interests, let's say. Uh, what I read about the Finnish examples are that is that the project should be rooted in an authentic, uh, genuine sort of context which the student can see, and hence they tend to be quite local. Okay, but they're still projects. And between you and this, Susan and Joanne, the two of you, you've mentioned topics such as water, war, food waste as being themes that could unite certain subjects on the, on the curriculum. Where can teachers look to for coming up with those kinds of themes? Uh, out their window. <laughs> Just, uh, projects are generated often by issues that are right in front of them. Um, one example that I could have given you a few minutes ago is about students who noticed uh, traffic patterns around their school and the, the uh, danger of parents dropping their student, their children off in a, at a busy intersection. So they started counting, you know, cars and redesigning the school parking lot and uh, entrance and exits and making a presentation to their school board. And creating uh, newsletters for the parents. It was a, a project that just sort of exploded 
so once you've got a the kernel of an idea you don't have to work very hard to see how integrated it could be but there are lots of examples online for example again project-based learning the buck institute is an example a utopia organization here in the in the states uh, has many many examples and susan what are the benefits of integration well there are many many benefits of integration if you're a believer in them in integration you will understand this right away or people that's one of the reasons they do it because of the benefits but the biggest one at the moment, this is very timely at the moment, because the OECD, who are very influential in education, as I'm sure they are in Ireland, as well as everywhere else in the world, have just put out a report in the last two weeks called Overcrowding the Curriculum. And they've looked at, I think, 52 different countries and their policies and the things that are going on and sort of at the same time as they're looking at the future of education and what's needed. And they have decided that the curriculum is definitely overcrowded, that instead of when there's something new that you have to teach, for example, computational thinking, instead of getting rid of something in the curriculum, people just add it on. So that in the last few years, more and more and more has been added onto the curriculum. All kinds of new literacies have been added on. And of course, the 21st century skills or competencies have been added on and nothing's been taken away. So their report is we have to stop overloading the curriculum. And the obvious way to do that is to integrate some of the things together. So that's, that's happening right now. I'm there, we'll see what the effect of that report is going to be. It's certainly very, very supportive of an integrated curriculum for the 21st century. But other, there's lots of other things. For example, we've been doing tracing the achievement levels over the last hundred years for people doing integrated curriculum. And generally the research says that the students do as well as the other students in traditional programs, they do as well as, and perhaps better, but they don't do any worse. So, I mean, why wouldn't we think about doing the integrated curriculum when the students like it better it's more fun, they're more engaged, the mental health is better, there are less discipline problems, all kinds of wonderful other benefits to this. Uh, the curriculum is relevant to them usually because that's one of the premises behind integrated curriculum. There can be a focus on the whole person so it can teach the social emotional character education. That's another thing the OECD said, we need to be able to put this in the curriculum for people's well-being and mental health. And as well, another benefit is, and we've seen this over and over again, that the teachers who collaborate together, although it's really hard work, uh, experience personal growth, experience excitement, they themselves are re-energized and are able to be more creative. So there's lots and lots and lots of benefits. And you say that it can energize teachers and it, it can lead to, to professional growth for them, but there are still obstacles to teachers integrating subjects, like, for example, the fact that most textbooks take an individual subject approach rather than an integrated approach. Oh, yes, there are lots of obstacles. Joanne, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just agreeing with you, uh, but I'm even questioning whether textbooks have much of a future. Uh, because even they are becoming transformed by different platforms and, and uh, the, the notion that knowledge can be stable and definite, I think is being undermined. Not undermined, that's the wrong word, that makes it sound challenging, but I think there's a, there's a shift to the, the notion that knowledge is flexible. <laughs> But there's, there's lots of obstacles. And so for, we, for six years now, Joanne and I and another colleague have been trying to put together all the research on integrated curriculum for over 100 years on achievement by, measured by standardized tests. 
And actually, we finally found quite a lot of it, but only in the last few years. But on the way to looking for that, article after article after article is about the obstacles. So, and, and I've actually been involved hands-on in a number of projects, creating and then implementing integrated curriculum with, with other teachers. So I, I know about those obstacles pretty up close. Well, most of it, I would say in the, some of it's scheduling and uh, timetabling, things like that. A lot of it is my terror, I'm a science teacher. I'm only a science teacher. I do not teach English or any other subject. Um, so there's, there's some things that are from the system's point of view and some things from actually a personality point of view. But we've found, or I've found, that if there's a will, there's a way, and that people can get around things like scheduling. They can get around the fact that how many kids do you put in the classroom if you put two to three classes together? And for example, I've seen classes that have been held in the cafeteria, classes held even in the boiler room in order to get all the kids in that were belonged in this particular sessions that, that we were teaching. And there's lots of ways to get around the scheduling too. If there is buy-in from both administration and from teachers. You, you, although even some people have been able to do it without the buy-in from the administration, it usually is top-down, bottom-up, and you have to have both, both of them working together. And Susan, you mentioned that you were looking at research on integrated curricula for over 100 years. Where did the idea of integrated curriculum originate from what you can find out? Well, I, don't, I think it's been around forever. Think of teachers in a one-room schoolhouse, eight grades in one room. But the origins, are it's actually traced back to before John Dewey, but mostly it's attributed to John Dewey and the progressive era, where they had progressive education. So the big thing about it is it's based on a philosophy, the whole philosophy of constructivism. So from this, which is quite different than a traditional learning. The understanding is that students make meaning through their own experiences and learning needs to be relevant, needs to be in the real world. It needs to be interactive, so it's active learning. And to make it, make it serious, it needs to be inquiry-based, there needs to be choice. So there's a whole lot of fundamental principles that go with constructivist learning. And that came so that's sort of part of the progressive movement that was in the 1930s and um, there's a famous eight-year study that was done at that time where they looked at students who over eight years that went through these kinds of schools all over the united states it was a very quantitative study where they had you know students who didn't take the program compared to the students who did and the end results of that study were that, what I've already told you, that the students did as well as or better, and quite a bit better in some cases than the students in the traditional programs once they got to university. And who conducted that study? Uh, Ralph Tyler and Hilda Taba. Okay, so Tyler, yeah, Tyler, uh, he was the, the publisher of uh, a lot of work on curriculum. Yeah, and the, the person who actually wrote about the study there's about eight books that go with it but the overview of it is by something called Aiken A-I-K-I-N and so he was the person who wrote it up but it was Ralph Tyler who actually in a collaborative group they created this and developed it and implemented it. And Joanne if I go back to you how do you balance applying the principles of integration while at the same time respecting the integrity of the different disciplines, like say the discipline of mathematics, the discipline of history, geography, science, and so on, on the school curriculum? I think you can balance it by respecting the notion of uh, sort of disciplinary thinking being applied to an interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary issue. So you can still teach students and, and foster the kinds of uh, perspective that a scientist would bring to an issue versus uh, what a historian or perhaps what an artist or poet might might bring. 
but there's often threads that knit up all of those. So for example, what counts as good evidence? Well, the scientist is going to have certain criteria to assess uh, the results of an experiment, for example, and then the historian might have another set of criteria that assesses the validity or the credibility of a source. But both of them have a, the same kind of notion that we will not accept just any old thing. So when I'm thinking like a scientist, I'm going to be applying this kind of lens. But I'd like to also have the mental flexibility to consider an issue from an alternative point of view. Say, how would an artist look at that phenomenon? So I don't think that you lose the disciplinary integrity by introducing it into an integrated project. In fact, I think it actually enriches the experience because it encourages students to have that sort of uh, cognitive flexibility that they need to look at real life issues. Real life issues don't come in a little subject box. They are often multidisciplinary. Sometimes we hear the term cross-curricular teaching or teaching to the big ideas. Are, are they really synonymous with integrated curriculum or do you see a difference between those different terms? Cross-disciplinary is often, when we talked about the continuum, it's often looked at as sort of at the lower level of the, con of the continuum. It's not that much in it that's integrated, but of course this is going to be how anybody interprets it. But the big ideas is, is something that's different. Big ideas, and that's referring to concept-based learning. And there's real shift towards that. And again, something that the OECD has recommended. So the big ideas can be in any subject area, but more often than not, they're in many subject areas. And so that's where we can start to think about things across the discipline, but also that those are the things we can teach to that will make sure that we have an integrated curriculum. For example, a theme, a big idea would be sustainability, which is certainly in science and it's also in history and it's also in geography. And we could go on forever with the places where sustainability is a really, really central idea. Or another one is patterns. In, in almost every subject area that we have, like math, science, art, psychology, English, all of those, we can find places where there are patterns within the subject area, things that we would be teaching. So the way that Joanne and I do it is that we look at, we have a concept called the KDB, which is the know, the do, and the be. And that if we teach to these, the this KDB and it's at the macro level, then it's very easy to start to integrate subject areas. So we're not looking at the really detailed level here, we're looking at the big level. So the, the no is this the concept-based idea and the no that you might choose, the big idea would be one that crosses over the disciplines like sustainability or change or conflict or the list just goes on and on. But then the do is big skills. So we have big ideas and big skills, which where we live are called either 21st century skills or 21st century competencies. There are different names for it. Uh, in Asia, it's more 21st century capabilities. They're all quite well known now. Countries around the world agree on them. So there are things like communication, critical thinking, creative thinking, collaboration. Global competency is a big one the OECD is now promoting. Uh, design thinking, of course, the digital, all kinds of digital skills. And each one of these big skills is comprised of littler skills, a subset of skills. So when we talk about communication, we're immediately talking about not reading, writing, oral communication, listening. Many countries are including media literacy in there. So uh, these are the big skills. And again, they cross every single subject. And, and also a new thing that's coming out of these 
literacies that again cross subject areas like digital and data literacy or literacy for sustainable development or environmental literacy or financial literacy. We were seeing that everywhere, uh, the need for that. So if we teach to the big skill of even let's say financial literacy, then the lessons may be much smaller. They could be with a subset of skills, maybe budgeting, for example, uh, that would fit a, a larger thing, a larger integrated curriculum. And then the last piece is the B. And the B is including things like social emotional learning, mental health, just generally that we want somebody to be a nice person. So it comes down to that. But we, we want them to do well in the world. We want them to be in harmony with the world. So there are other things in there like citizenship and we want them to be a good citizen and understand their culture. So, but these things all kind of go together at the same time. So that's where people get confused and say, well, lots of countries have said, oh, they used to say, oh, we're not gonna teach the B. In fact, there's a old story about uh, urban legend, I think, that when in the days when people thought they were teaching values and then one young man in some place in the United States, they failed him. He couldn't graduate from high school and they said, oh, it's because you, you don't have good values. So we, we are failing you. And apparently according to the legend that went to court and because it went to court, they then said, okay, nobody's allowed to teach values anymore. And so for a whole period of time, there was value-free curriculum, which of course there can't be, but that's the way curriculum was. And so most curriculum you look at will have what do students know and what can they do? And there's nothing about what do they value? What are their attitudes? What are their behaviors? But that's changed in the last few years is now a big shift and probably the pandemic's helping with this one too, that how are people being in this world? What are their values? And it matters. And that we have to be thinking about this too. So I know I've said a lot of things here, but for us, that's what really can be tied together across the curriculum, across many, many disciplines. And Joanne, when you and Susan do your research on integrated curriculum, how do you go about it? I'll just speak a little bit to the process that we've applied in our attempt to consolidate our understanding of student achievement within an integrated curriculum. So there are three people, three uh, researchers on this project, and each of us has gone through a variety of databases and called out articles that we think might be relevant. Uh, we assess them individually and then assess them together to determine whether uh, they are good pieces of research and whether we want to include them in our sort of database. And then we try to determine the bigger picture of what all these studies are telling us about student achievement in an integrated curriculum over a time period. Do you ever, for example, go into schools to observe teachers applying integrated curricula? I have not for a while. Susan, maybe you want well, to speak. I have not for the last little while because we've been doing this data-based research, but I've been doing this for a long time, for over 30 years. When I first started doing it during the late 80s, early 90s, and there was a big movement towards it. And nobody really knew how to do it at that point. And we, I worked with a number of different groups. So I either worked hands-on with them. Uh, for a period of time, I worked in a high school with a science department. And then we integrated with other departments. And we created curriculum that was actually, it was a very exciting project. Uh, and I've also worked with a number of different groups right from the scratch. And what I did as a researcher was try to tell their story. So the early work that I did uh, was a lot of stories about people and how they made sense of this whole thing. So it was very grassroots and 
I didn't actually have the theory at the time to back it up. Now, so I sort of went backwards on this. So I found out how this worked, worked it through with a number of people and number of situations. And then much later, I've gone back now and looked at the theory about, I didn't even realize there was all this theory back there, which I think happens with people at that time in the 80s and 90s. Everybody thought they were reinventing the wheel and none of us knew that there was so much history and there was one, one theorist, Gordon Vars, he used to despair and say, nobody knows the history, nobody understands the history. And in fact, that was right. And Joanne and I just did an article that came out in a journal called Frontiers, which is actually about the history of integrated curriculum. <laughs> but yeah. a long time, it was, very, it was very interesting to us because had we understood all those things, we might in fact um, had shortcuts to learning how to do an integrated curriculum. So when you talk you know, about though, so it's, oh sorry no sorry go ahead John. well just as you were talking I I totally forgot remember the blue water study that we uh, we worked uh, with a school board uh, just a regular public school board here in Ontario where the a group of well they were all grades in an elementary in the elementary panel and so we interviewed them about their they created integrated projects and then we interviewed them over two period two years um, about their their obstacles and their challenges their successes and and their benefits like a quite a large qualitative study um, about their experiences and that was really informative actually that kind of gave me the foundation for a lot of the implementation issues that I'm interested in. And what did you observe in that school? It was the Blue Water School, was it? Well, the Blue Water is the Blue Water is a school board. So okay. there are a number of schools scattered across a geographic area. Um, and these teachers volunteered to be part of a project that was focused on curriculum integration. And generally they were very positive about their experiences, although they were sort of they were just starting from a real, you know, square one. So they, they worked really hard and learned a lot. We all learned a lot. Can you remember anything they did? Okay, one of them was students took an everyday project, a product, a chocolate bar, something like that, and traced the, where the origins, what are the raw materials and where does it come from and how is it manufactured and how is it uh, the trade routes and is the his history of its product like coffee for example and then they created a little store where they upscaled uh, took used products a sweater or something like that and tried to make it into something else so they created a store that they are a fair that they could sell their made products so they had a little business side to it that's such an interesting one isn't it because i mean there's geography there there's history there's uh, oh, a bit yeah. of economics uh, an environment uh, it, like again it's one of those things where you start with something that seems so simple but blow it out and you can see connections everywhere yeah. and they, that's what the kids do they start you know kind of their brain goes nuts <laughs> So last night I found one of the things that I did quite a long time ago and I looked it up and wrote it up as an article, but I'd almost forgotten about it because it was so long ago, but it was in grade four and the kids had a medieval fair. But in order to do the medieval fair, and we and a part of the work that we do is really trying to bring together accountability and relevance. Because what stopped the that movement that I was talking about to you in the late in the mid-90s it was stopped dead because the accountability movement came in and now everybody was tied to standards and standardized testing I'm pretty sure that happened in Ireland because it happened everywhere uh, so our job or my job at the time was to figure out how can we still use the standards and make an integrated curriculum because there had been lots and lots of people who were doing integrated curriculum particularly in the United States and they said when the new accountability stuff came in they said we can't do it anymore 
But in, in fact, they really could if they started to use that KDB that I mentioned before. This was a big umbrella at a macro level. They were they could actually do it, but they didn't. They didn't really understand that. So this particular one was a medieval fair where the students had read, done research, read books on the medieval times. They had built castles. And then they built the castles. They built catapults and things where they use science for the pulleys and gears. So they use those kinds of things. They had learned the medieval dances. So then when we had this big fair and, and they, we invited all the parents and all the different classes and they all came in and these, and there was two grade four classes involved and two teachers and myself. And uh, so, the kids, the, all the auditorium had all their artwork up that they had drawn and their research charts and all of those things were up there. They were there available to be interviewed. They had their castles there. And I read in the article how these boys had got up and done a dance and how astounded the teacher had been that these boys had all gone up and done a dance performance when, you know, but they had, they had researched the dance and. So he was amazed that they'd actually gone up and done this. They all came in costume. It was a big, big celebration. And the unit took about three months to do, but it incorporated all the, all the different subject areas. So that's another example. When you refer there to the impact of standardized assessment in the 90s and how that led to maybe to discouraging integrated curricula, and, and I, mean, I suppose that happened a bit later in Ireland, we really didn't get into so much standardization until maybe the 2010s but how does assessment need to adapt when a teacher integrates curriculum i'm going to just say one thing and then pass this on to joey but the last book that we did the book was called interweaving curriculum instruction and assessment and so for us the assessment is an integral part of the curriculum and you can't think of, you have to think of it all the time as you're building your curriculum. So I guess that's what it should be like anyway in traditional education, but it hasn't always been. It was sort of a test at the end. I'm just gonna pass that on to Joey. Assessment is complicated. And you know what's been interesting for me to watch is how the pandemic has upthrown or maybe accelerated a, a situation that I think was starting to take shape just before the pandemic hit. And that was a sort of shift away from uh, the predominance of large-scale assessments and you know competitive league tables and so on towards a concern for uh, socio-emotional learning and a more holistic approach to the whole being of the child. Uh, certainly in the pandemic, this has really emerged. And part of it is just practical that you can't administer these large scale assessments when you can't put people in congregated spaces. Um, but I'm, I just have this sense, and I'm careful here because this was a field where I worked in, um, that uh, there's not as much faith being placed in the large-scale assessments as being the be-all and end-all in, in terms of painting a picture, an assessment picture. So I'm, I may turn out to be totally wrong, but there's my little kind of possible prediction. I think in an integrated curriculum, because you're working on the macro scale with the larger, more sort of overall expectations, you can still reach those kind of assessment targets by using uh, formative assessment and more kind of specific content-based assessments at the lesson level. So, you know, if you're worried that, oh, they won't know the dates for World War II or something, you can make sure that they do if you think that's so important uh, at, 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 a, at a quiz. But we really try to promote the idea of rich performance uh, assessment tasks as, as culminating activities. And those tasks can be rich because they are integrated and they can 
across many disciplines by using those kind of the knitting needles uh, of 21st century competencies that are cross-curricular and big ideas that are cross-curricular. So, you, you know, you can cover a lot of bases with a, a rich performance task. And I suppose that makes more sense as well if, as you mentioned earlier, you're doing it for a supposed client, for example. Oh, I feel, well, Susan and I both feel this way, that it's so much more engaging and authentic and real and motivating. If students think that their project has value in a wider world, not just they're not just performing for the teacher. It, it's meaningful to them if they have some other audience that's outside the classroom. In a, one of our cities in Ontario, the project was to develop a plan for bettering the city. The city would, wanted to make itself better. So all the students went out and they did research and they involved a number of different areas. And then the final culminating performance was they presented to the city council. Those were, it was the real city council. And interestingly, uh, they picked one of the plans from these students and they implemented it for the city. So that really was worthwhile when they did it. What age group were those students? Uh, they were high school. They were grade, our grade 11, so they'd be 16, 17. And they did it in, in this particular school. Every kid in grade 11 was involved in the project. So it sort of transcended the cl daily classrooms and all the teachers got involved in it. So that's what I mean about the imagination that happens when, when teachers get together, they're so imaginative and it's incredible the kinds of things they come up with. Mm -hmm. I'd also just like to add something else more to that, that some of the projects, so something like that, how would people assess it? And one of the ways they did it was when they looked at standards, they would take the standards that, so in the number of assignments and things that they did to get ready to present their idea, the English teacher could look at the ones that were covered under literacy and the, the history teacher could look at the ones covered under history and all, every different subject area would look at their particular standards and how the student demonstrated it. That's one way that the assessment's done on a big project, but another way it's been done, something I got was involved in once where the kids read science fiction and then the science teachers, and they read a, a book about science fiction, grade nine this was, and then they created their own experiments from the book reading the scenario, which was someplace up in the Arctic where plants didn't grow. And in, anyway, they all created their experiments and in the end, what happened to this one is that the English teachers taught the science teachers how to actually mark the English because in the end, the science teachers taught the English part as well and also assessed it, but mentored by the English department. So there's, again, lots and lots of creative ways to go about assessment. Joanne, were you going to come in there? Oh, well, no, I was, I'm glad that Susan brought that up because, uh, it, again, you don't know if the integrated curriculum is being conducted by one person or by uh, perhaps a, a partnership or a group of three or but however the, you know, however the, the curriculum is being designed. But that's one of the things that teachers mention as a benefit is how they grow professionally by really understanding more deeply what goes on in other subject areas and recognizing, oh my gosh, we're all teaching the same kind of skill set, let's say, um, in different ways. How can we make it more coherent? And moderated marking where they do share assessment tasks and, and really becomes a very professionally rich and also sometimes a more reliable ex assessment experience for the student. Susan, I think it was you said when you started off looking at the whole area of integration, you weren't aware of the wealth of history and theory that, that was there behind it. If a teacher wanted to find out more about that history and theory, what kind of, which scholars would you encourage them to, to read or to, to look up? Look us up. We just did a paper on it. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> and, and who else? <laughs> yes, um, there are a few. At, the way we looked at it was we divided, we found four different times when integrated curriculum was, was recommended. The thing about it, the reason the catalyst each time for it was that students weren't doing very well with disciplinary learning. And so the governments came along and said, well, what can we do? They're not doing very well. And so then people said, well, it's not relevant enough. They're not engaged in it. They're not interacting in their classrooms. And so there was a shift to this more progressive way of learning. So when it began back, we talked about this already in the 1930s, the big person behind it theorist is John Dewey. At, there were other ones as well, but the other one that stood the test of time was Kirkpatrick and he developed the project method which of course today we'd be looking at as what we called the rich performance assessment task or the culminating activity for problem-based learning. But Kirkpatrick developed this whole thing back in the 1930s. And, and today, sometimes students do independent studies. In the IB schools, for example, they- That's the International Baccalaureate, right? Yes, yeah. they do a lot of integrated work there starting way back in their primary program, they call, they have a transdisciplinary program. And then by the time in the IB schools, by the time they are graduating, they've done some big independent study, which is going to be by its very nature integrated. Well, maybe I'm not exactly accurate on that, but the people I know who've done them, there's tended to be integrated. So the motive for the schools in back in the 1930s, was one, to make schools more engaging, and two, to teach generic life skills because they found kids weren't learning them in school and they needed them to get, they weren't gonna be brilliant academic people. They needed generic life skills to get on in life. Those two things are still with us. So then the war came along, it was the end of the eight year study. People forgot about the progressive era. And then there was a movement called the Common Core that was, I think, basically only in the United States, but it had the same thing. Let's engage the students so that they can succeed and let's do generic life skills. And the person most involved with that would be Gordon Vars. You're really looking for research. Gordon Vars did a much, lots and lots of research about all integration. And then the other person that did a lot at that time would be James Bean. He's very well known in the, in the uh, in integrated curriculum field. Then we moved through a period of time when we went back to the basics, back to the standardization, back to the rote learning, rows and all of the things we think of as traditional education. And in the late 1980s, two reports came out of the United States a report came out in Canada that said the same thing. Students aren't doing very well again. What are we going to do? And so a new movement came forward that the goal was to engage students. And now a new thing, 21st century life skills, because we're moving into the 21st century. So these things that were once just called generic life skills are now called 21st century life skills. And you get the partnership for 21st century skills in the United States. And all over the world, there are different organizations and school boards determining, or and countries determining what these are. So that period of time was like the Wild West, and that's when I got involved in it. There were all kinds of things happening all over the United States, all over Canada. I'm not sure how much was happening in Europe. The colleagues I knew, it was pretty traditional still, but they, I may not have known it. But it ended, as I said, with the accountability movement and everybody moved back into their little silos. And now as we're in 2020 and as last week, the OECD came out with their paper on promoting integrated curriculum and many, many other things, but really progress, promoting a progressive agenda with the underlying goal of equity. So a lot of people criticize OECD because they say it's you know, neoliberal. And, but in fact, the things 
Joanne and I think they're promoting is wonderful because it's all the things we've been writing about all this year. <laughs> uh, and so that that's sort of a history. And I don't know who those experts are at this period of time. A lot of people call us because I don't think there's anybody, maybe I'm wrong on this, but I don't think anybody's yet emerged, but I can guarantee you there will be. The other thing that's different now is because of uh, big data now that we are now finally being able to get research data that suggests that students that do study from an integrated approach are doing just as well as anybody else in the things that have to be done, the disciplinary standardized tests. So we've collected a number of studies that just came out in the last few years that would have been impossible to do before because there, there weren't ways to deal with so much data. And you've touched on this when you referred to the International Baccalaureate, but how do approaches to integration change as students move, say, from pre grade pre-kindergarten right up to grade 12 in the United States, at least? Usually they begin with baby steps. People do it. It's a project that's interesting to one person, two people, maybe a school, maybe a principal in the school, sometimes a superintendent in the school. We are not United States. So we are Canada and we are Ontario, which makes us a little bit different. Our province uh, has the curriculum documents allow people to integrate, but they're written as disciplinary things. So someone has to interpret them with this no do and be, which is really why we developed that. But other provinces in Canada are very pro-integration and British Columbia has a new curriculum and Saskatchewan has an integrated, more than possibilities for it. They really, really encourage it. United States though, even though I did a book on integrated curriculum and the common core standards, that book was about how people could use those standards and still integrate because it's there but again it's not the common course they all have for example literacy in in the subject areas so literacy in science and literacy in english and the different subject areas have standards for literacy so there you've got some places where you can start to build things that cut across each other but i would say generally speaking in the united states most of it is still siloed and disciplinary and it stops people. Although there's wonderful things going on. For example, high tech high. If your teachers want to look at high tech high, it's, a, it's called high tech high, but it's a vast school board with many high schools and many middle schools and many elementary schools. And they post up all of their projects that they're doing and you can watch it and see a vast number of things that different students are doing and different classrooms are doing to get ideas of how people integrate the curriculum. And for a teacher who has done little, if any, integration of curriculum or, you know, maybe they've done random work on integration, how would you encourage teachers to plan for integration in their teaching in a sustainable way? Well, sustainable is, is a big question because often uh, the combination of people that might want to implement it isn't stable like people move around schools or some such thing so that's that can be an issue but just as susan say, said i think you could start small just start with a little unit for example or one of the phenomena we're starting to see around is it's called genius hour, where a certain period of time, maybe it's an hour a week or whatever, is set aside for students to develop their own projects and they, by their nature, become integrated. Yeah, but most, most uh, practitioners in their comments about, about their own implementation advise the starting small method. They take your standards and look for ways to cross-reference well, we Americans say standards, we say expectations, but you know, your documents will guide you by giving you what it is you at the macro level that you need to cover. 
And for a teacher, say, maybe who's teaching, you know, 10 years, say they're, they're an experienced teacher, how much integration is reasonable for a teacher to aim at over a day, a week, a month, or a year in their classroom? Yeah. I don't know how to answer that. That would be so personal and local. I mean, I guess a lot depends on what's, who's available, what's available, what kind of flexibility do you have in your school with your administration, let's say, or generally what happens is if people start small and get pretty excited and then go bigger and bigger. So, so it really is just to get started doing anything and then see how it develops. I think so. You asked um, how, what happens through the older grades. And I think the answer to that is not what you think. Most people think, oh, everybody's integrating at elementary classrooms, but that is not necessarily true at all. I think it could be anywhere at any level. You can do, you can do as much in grade two as you can do in grade 12. But it really depends on the mindset of the teachers. Anyway, so one project that I visited it's in Vermont it's been going since 1972 or 74, so it's a long-term going. They do an integrated program. It's a school within a school. They do an integrated program all year long. And they start off with the students take the standards and they create the curriculum. The teachers are there. They facilitate and everything. But basically... It begins with students' questions. What are your questions about the world? And what are your questions about yourself? And then they look at the standards and they create the curriculum and they create the assessments and ultimately they create the day-by-day -day plans for the year. And I was actually there. So I was there, I think, in October. So it'd take them six weeks. So a whole lot of the teaching was figuring out how to create a curriculum and what your questions are. And then the students followed and the teachers took the students' work and it was collaborative with the teachers. But honestly, the students were very capable of creating a wonderful curriculum and the assessments. So that's, that's all day, all year since 1972. So that's a far end obviously and, that, and that's evidence of sustainability anyway yeah <laughs> for a teacher who's using integration in their teaching how can they evaluate if they've done a good job or if they're doing a good job how does any teacher do that no matter what kind of curriculum you're developing you'd be watching and listening to your students what do they say about what they're learning how engaged and active are they? What's the, I don't know. There's teachers collect that kind of feedback all the time. There's the, they can compare them to the student work the years before, but in the research that we were doing, we had a really hard time finding articles that we thought were substantive enough because we found article after article after article by a teacher talking about what a wonderful experience it had been and how, how well the students had done and how much better everything was. And we couldn't use any of that in our research, but there was so much of it. So that is, I think that the experience itself, the teachers, an experienced teacher just can intuit, oh, this, this was better. Susan and Joanne, we're coming near the end. So I have a few general questions which are not related to curriculum uh, integration, but uh, I, I'd be interested in your, your perspectives on them. And the first one is, what is school for or what are schools for in your view? So Susan or Joanne. That was one of my uh, first uh, interview question and in trying to get a teaching job. <laughs> thought, oh my gosh, you're really hitting me with the heavy hitter right at the top. <laughs> well, I'm going to give a really simple answer. To develop the whole person to be a contributing member of society. It's very clear. Yeah. Joanne, can you remember that answer you gave at your teaching interview? <laughs> this is why Susan and I work together so often. We have we often have disagreements, but on that point, we do agree. <laughs> okay. And I'll ask each of you, is there a teacher who had a significant impact on you? For me, no. 
Susan, no. That's sad, isn't it? I never had a really good teacher. A significant impact doesn't have to be positive. It could have been negative. I mean, I learned what I had to learn by the hard knocks of being a teacher who had a difficult, challenging time as a, a new teacher. So that's how I learned what it was. I don't know I, well, how I got into it. I had a class of 36 tech boys in grade nine. I had to teach them grammar and this inspector came in and all the boys, they weren't bad. They weren't throwing things or anything, but they were bad in that they put their hands up and they always gave the wrong answer. And at the end of the session, the supervisor, the evaluator said to me, I think you better get out of this profession. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, I was very, very upset and I didn't know what to do, but I realized then, okay, I got to change this, obviously. And I found out that the only way I could keep these boys' attention was to make the curriculum so interesting and so engaging, they didn't have time to be bad. And the only way to do that was to integrate it. So I've been doing this a long time. So is that that's the source of your interest in integration then? That's how I got to do it, started doing it. Cause at the time I was a high school teacher teaching phys ed and English. And so then I started putting the English and the phys ed together and that's how it began. And what about you, Joanne? Did you have a teacher who had a significant impact on you? Yeah, I did. I had an English teacher who, if you looked at her, you would, you'd be scared stiff and we all were. <laughs> But uh, it was the classic example of someone who was austere, strict, but she taught literature and you could just see a transformation, a physical transformation, actually, as she read out loud or, you know, she would talk about a character and it was, it just alerted me. I was in grade nine at the time and just made me think, oh, the experience I have, I'm a love to read. And I thought, mm, this carries on into adult, the adult world, this belief that language and literature is transformative. That was very inspirational to me. And the final question then for both of you is, have you a favorite writer, book or blog about education? Okay, I'll answer. I don't have a favorite writer, book, or blog, but what I do have a favorite thing is Twitter. So I find it absolutely fascinating. And when we actually did the, our book on interweaving curriculum and assessment, many of the people, the stories that are in that book were people that I met on Twitter. And much later in life, after we'd written about them, I actually met them in person somehow or other. But on Twitter, there's a whole network of people, at least in Ontario or across Canada and in the United States, actually, because the network extends over there, where they share what they're doing almost day by day and sometimes almost minute by minute. And it is like being in their classrooms. It's a bird's eye view of what they're doing. And of course, the teachers that are on there doing that are very innovative, very good teachers. So. I just find them so inspiring and a great place to go for ideas. And is there a particular person with a handle that you follow or is there a hashtag they use to unite those ideas? I don't know one. There probably is, but what I have is like a personal learning network of just people that I've collected over time. Uh, some of them are students that I've had, but a lot of them, they just, they arrive into my Twitter and I follow them if I think they're doing something good. And what about you, Joanne? Do you have a favorite writer, book or blog about education? I'm trying to think. It's not that I'm trying to think. It's just that I'm not right here in my bookshelf. <laughs> but, you know, different people hit you at different times. You know, sometimes you have to be in the right space for a book to make an impact. So I, I'm thinking, for example, uh, Bell Hooks. Uh, I remember reading her and thinking, oh, my God, what a, an amazing, amazing mind at work here. 
And then occasionally uh, Susan tells me I'm playing with the bad boys if I'm <laughs> reading about uh, critical theory. Or um, one other experience I had was, um, because I, I was working in large-scale assessment and really kind of in that world of data. And I read uh, Dylan and uh, Black and Dylan. And they, oh, Black I can't remember the name of the book. Black and the, William. Yes, that's right, Dylan William. You know, the one where they took the five teachers and they were, that they took that formative assessment process and applied it in their in their classrooms so it read almost like a novel these five teachers were describing their ups and downs and they were just so you know so uh, so real in their you know emotional and intellectual journey it was fascinating and I wish I could remember now what it was called and you will find a link to that book and many more resources in the show notes for this podcast You have been listening to Professor Susan Drake from Brock University in Ontario, Canada and Dr Joanne Reid speaking to me about curriculum integration. Both Susan and Joanne acknowledged that we could only scratch the surface in a one-hour episode on this topic. However, if you'd like to find out more, please go to the show notes where there are links to and names of lots of further resources on this topic. You can listen back to or download this podcast and over 400 previous episodes by going to my website, seandelaney.com, and clicking on podcasts. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave a review of the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Write to me with comments or suggestions to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, is now available in audio format. Until the next time we meet in 2021, this is Sean Delaney wishing you peace for the festive season and a joyful new year. Thank you for listening. (music) 